Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month we've been looking at how UK businesses emerge from the coronavirus lockdown. With me to discuss that this week is Professor John Lofhead, Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Gavin, and thank you for inviting me. It's great to have the opportunity to uh, take part in this different way for the FST to uh, to work. I've had contacts with you for several years, and uh, we're all finding new ways to work through this uh, time. Indeed, we are. Looking at the coronavirus and the lockdown, what's been the overall scale of the impact on UK business of the lockdown? The scale has been enormous overall and in general. Clearly, there are some sectors that have been affected more than others. So those companies in the essential retail sector, so food and similar things, have kept functioning, uh, but under challenging circumstances. And they've had to take major steps to be able to do that. So if you cast your mind back to March, where Tesco went out looking for 45,000 new employees in, in just a few days, but nevertheless, they kept operating. At the other end of the scale, when particularly in the hospitality sector, the businesses simply have not been able to operate in the vast majority of cases. Uh, hotels, many restaurants, pubs, bars, and so the impact there has been uh, enormous for them, in some cases catastrophic, which is tragic. And if we look at the economy overall, we saw a 20% fall in GDP. And those are numbers that economists never dreamed they would ever see. So the effects have been vast. Now, presumably, such a shock to the business system is potentially a catalyst for some disruptive change in the ways that companies do business. What sort of disruptive changes have we seen so far, at least, dealing with the short term crisis? You're absolutely right to talk about disruptive change. Uh, but even though it's disruption, sometimes the change takes a while to manifest itself. Okay. Um, and so I would say in response to that, if you look over the last few months um, at one impact with the closure of, of non-essential retail, there has been not a total shift to e-commerce in compensation, but a very substantial shift to e-commerce. Uh, we've seen during that period that sadly uh, some retail organisations have uh, not been able to keep going at all. Um, others have announced substantial cutbacks. So one example that I would say is that we have seen a dramatic acceleration in the rate at which retail e-commerce has, um, has developed. And we've also seen what could potentially be a restructuring uh, to a degree of the sector. And that brings into question the whole nature of retail going forward which is why I would say that sometimes the disruption takes a time to manifest, but you can see the seeds of that disruption that have already appeared. I think in other areas, probably the disruptive effect is not uh, easily visible, uh, particularly in supply chains and the nature of supply chains built to ensure improved resilience. Uh, but those will manifest themselves um, in the coming months and small number of years. 
you talked about supply chains just then. What have we learned from this crisis about how resilient supply chains are? And do, does that level of resilience need to change going forward? Supply chains over the last two decades in the UK have been optimised for lowest financial cost. And we have seen some incredibly sophisticated supply chains develop through uh, just-in-time deliveries, uh, through the way that supermarkets have stocked shelves, car manufacturers have ordered parts. I think what we've seen during the pandemic is the fact that some of these supply chains are fragile to disruption and that their level of resilience, inherent resilience, was not as high as the circumstances would make you wish them to be. So I think we probably had a lesson in the fact that uh, it's rather like saying after 50 years of peace, you're not prepared for a war. And after 20 years or 30 years of quite stable operation, um, perhaps we've been given a lesson in the fact that disruptions can occur unexpectedly. Uh, and if your planning doesn't allow for it, then you can see severe shortages. I think overall, however, we have come through this remarkably unscathed compared with what could have happened. We've not seen major shortages of of food. We've seen instances of panic buying for certain commodities, but I mean, I can remember when, um, you know, it was almost organized criminal activity to steal toilet rolls. And uh, <laughs> last weekend when I was in one of my local supermarkets, I won't say they were piled to the ceiling, but there was quite clearly no shortage. So the system was able to cope. But what it couldn't cope with was those peaks in rate of consumption that couldn't be sustained indefinitely anyway. And I think you can never be resilient wholly to that unless you hold vast stocks. And that's where the cost comes in. So I think I think we've been given a lot of lessons that will feed into our thinking about the future. To what degree do we want to have resilience? Because resilience comes at a financial cost. But sometimes the other costs of lack of resilience make that financial cost justifiable. And I think we need to look at that trade off going forward. And is that trade off the same for all sectors or is it different in different uh, economic sectors? I think uh, the trade off is uh, very different in the different sectors, depending on where the shortage occurs due to a lack of resilience in a supply chain, the effects can be very different. And sadly, some of the effects that we would find most challenging are in the supplies of commodities and those areas which are intrinsically low added value activities. And therefore, you need to look very carefully at how you might provide resilience in that. So, you know, if there was a shortage of water, we'd all be in a panic within hours if there was a shortage of energy supply, we'd probably be within a panic within days. If there was a shortage of the uh, the sewage removal system, that would be days as well. A shortage of, I don't know, computer controlled electric drills, we could probably survive for a couple of months before we started to worry about it. So I think the speed at which that comes through and the scale of the effects are very different. But some of those basic commodities that are low value are actually life critical. And we need to remember that scale of some pharmaceuticals, much higher added value, probably life critical. 
but and this will sound harsh life critical for a smart far smaller percentage of the population no understood thinking about how businesses recover then from the coronavirus um, we talked about the fact that some disruptive change we're sowing the seeds now but things could move on over the course of the next year or so and it'd be interesting to explore what some of those trends might be and some of those disruptive changes might be and in particular whether all the technology exists to just implement those changes or whether we're actually going to see another set of technology development in order to do that. I think inevitably the changes that we will see will be those enabled by current technology. So if I go back to my earlier example and talk about the substantial increase in e-commerce for for, uh, normal retail activity, that can be sustained by what we have, but it brings into question other issues. It brings into question the reliability of our communications infrastructure. It brings into question the scale and capacity of our distribution transport infrastructure. It also introduces questions of social equity, because to be able to use it, you've got to have an internet connection and you've got to have a computer or you've got to have a mobile phone that you can use effectively for that. You've also got to have a bank account and usually a credit card. So what I think it does is it's not that we do not have the components to make it work effectively, but we change the economic and social model in a way that we've not currently been able to fully assess uh, when we do that. Having done that, I would then argue that we will start to see the need of future technological developments flow out of that. So let me let me go slightly speculative here and say if e-commerce for clothes shopping uh, became more widespread, then at the moment I will order my pair of jeans or shirt from whichever retailer. They'll deliver them. I'll try them on. I'll hope that they fit. If they don't, I send them back. They send me a different size pair. We could imagine a much greater use of digital twins of our body. We we could imagine that individuals could have their body scanned for size and it would be possible for the retail operation as part of the sale to actually drape the clothes on the body or test the fit of the specific shoes. And that would transform the activity and also the sector quite a lot. Now, all of those things are technically capable at the moment. I remember seeing computer simulations of fabric drape 20 years ago, 30 years ago in university laboratories. So it is possible, but not at all developed. Mm. Once you've done that, you then might have the fact that the next obvious step is to go to custom manufacture. So rather than developing stock, if the cost can be brought down effectively, you can simply make for a body. So it's 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 more than made to measure. It is it is literally custom uh, construction. All of those things would require technological development. But you can see how once you've shifted your path, that will inspire new directions of development and research and competitive edge for the companies involved. So I can uh, definitely see that in terms of retail uh, and so on. I want to explore a little bit 
more general changes about the way that we work. And clearly, for those people who are able to work from home, and that's not everybody because of the nature of what they do, but those who are have now been working at home for several months and potentially maybe for several more weeks or months in the future. Is this going to be a long term trend in the way that businesses will have much more people working at home much more of the time? Is this the end of the traditional office? What's your, what, what's your view? Uh, well, I think that's a really uh, fascinating question, uh, one to which I don't have the answer. So there are a number of factors. So there are certain occupations which potentially can work from home and certain occupations where you can't work from home. So if we talk about the former, it may be possible to do your job from home, but not everybody is able to do that for various reasons. So I'm at the stage in, in my life where I can have a room in my house with an Internet connection, a computer. I can do my stuff and I'm not disturbed. If I was uh, 23 and living in London, I could be in a shared house with two, three, maybe even four other people, all of whom trying to work from home. There may not be the physical infrastructure, as in um, some reasonable desk or table and a chair from which to work. And it may be that the communications connection won't support five people all trying to video conference at once. So not everybody can do it. Not everybody who might be in an office based occupation necessarily has the capability of hardware to be able to do this or software. So there is an equity balance in that. Having said that, and let's assume that we can overcome that in some way, I'm sure that we will see a shift to a more flexible working pattern because we will need to go through some form of restricted, some social distancing of some form, some some measures to mitigate the potential spread of inflection, probably over several months in one way or another. So workplaces will be working differently. I think we'll therefore move towards, but not totally go that way, because it's already becoming evident that the practice of working from home is leading to challenges in some areas. We're starting to see the impact of the lack of social interaction of a casual nature that you get through a work environment. Uh, we're starting to see the breakdown of some of the social activities generated by groups of people being uh, put together in a work environment. And I think there's also the question that when you're working from home and using video conference and similar systems, everybody knows where you are all of the time. Certainly, we have seen some evidence from our own working environment of an extension of individuals working days, an increased amount of out of normal hours working and a significant increase in out of normal working day working. And one of the things is when everybody's working remotely like this, interestingly, it becomes quite easy to track people's work patterns not for the purpose of surveillance and, and whatever, but simply you know how much computer time and communication is being undertaken. So I think there will be a shift. I think we will see more flexible working. It has implications for the value of property, um, particularly commercial property, the way it's used. But I think there are also social uh, aspects to it that are not trivial and that we've not fully thought through. And some of those social aspects might include car journeys, use of public transport, 
the amount of people in city centres, rush hour, those types of things. Absolutely. And I think one of the potential downsides is there might be a preference to use cars for travel, although outside London, frankly, most people commute to work by car anyway. But certainly the use of public transport could diminish and that will have some advantages. So the ramifications are enormous. We, we have a system that was effectively developed in the 19th century to enable commerce and industry to develop and flourish in its growth phase. And that involves cities for shops, for offices. It involved factories and associated communities for the people that worked in them. We are now in a situation where we have those infrastructures of that nature because they're there, not because our current working life would design them that way. Given all this uncertainty, but given these changes and challenges, what are the priorities for Bay, so the Department for Business, in supporting companies as they try and get through this and find a new normal, whatever that is? Well, there are various mitigations, as you know. So there are numerous measures that I won't go into introduced uh, predominantly by the Treasury, but delivered through Bayes to provide loans for for companies that needed them to keep going. There's the furlough scheme. That's all the emergency response. As we move into the next phase, there will be a question of how do you effectively restart or accelerate those companies that are dramatically slowed down and what kind of support will they need? And that is one of Bayes' main tasks is to understand industry, to look at the way in which the UK would like its industrial base and and financial base to develop going forward and at what point is publicly funded intervention of some form necessary to either enable that or to support or facilitate that. And a year or so ago Bayes published the government's industrial strategy but clearly a lot has happened since then both the UK's departure from the European Union but of course now this big crisis Does this mean a change in what's in the industrial strategy and how that's taken forward by government? So interestingly, it's over two years ago that the industrial strategy was uh, was formally published. Time flies, doesn't it? It Uh, Particularly when you're struggling with pandemics. So the, the answer to that is that the industrial strategy, when it was released, was framed to be itself a a fairly resilient document. Uh, If you look at the main headlines, it was about facilitating the development of of industry rather than the conventional way of saying we're we're going to build a sports car or whatever it is. As as we come out of, of, of the current emergency, clearly there will be moves to look at the current industrial strategy and say, well, is is that still of the right shape? But that is almost coincidental because if you're going to have an industrial strategy that is essentially tackling generational issues, the levelling up of of productivity across the UK, the better distribution of of benefits to uh, more widely to the population through, uh, through economic activity, then you're not going to solve that in one or two years. It's going to be itself a generational activity. No plan can be laid down in detail on day one and stuck to uh, without change. That's just foolish. So it was always intended 
that the industrial strategy provided a framework and that as one moved forward, periodically you would look at and say, does this now need adjusting in the light of changed circumstances? So I would say that the circumstances have changed. It would be astonishing if any responsible administration or government weren't saying, let's just uh, review just to make sure that there's nothing there that needs changing. But it would be wrong to envisage that somebody is going to say, let's tear that up because things have changed and do it yeah. again. Yeah. It would be part of the business as usual review of plans, adjustment and refinement of what's being what's being done. No, that uh, that definitely makes sense. One of the other things that the government has is a long term target to increase investment in R&D to 2.4 percent of GDP. How can this future investment now support new technology, new innovation to help move companies into this sort of post COVID position? So an investment in R&D and innovation can pay off in anything between two weeks and 20 years. So I think it would probably be it would be wrong to somehow see this as a as a as a medicine for for the effect of, of the pandemic. It was it was always said that the government wished to substantially increase the um, the percentage of GDP spent on R&D. The majority of that will happen through private sector investment. It doesn't happen through government investment. What government investment does is provides many of the right environmental factors that will encourage the the expenditure of, of private money in that area. Clearly, there's work going on in universities. There is the right kind of regulatory environment that is supportive of innovation and introduction of new practices while continuing to fulfil its main duty of protecting the public. There is all the question about ease of finance, the access to skills. Much of the stuff that's in the industrial strategy is actually about providing the environment to facilitate that. So I think what I would say is rather than viewing it as I said before, the medicine that cures this, these are the characteristics of what will be the fertile ground within which the economy and economic activity will be able to recover and the opportunities for new businesses, new innovations can uh, can take place. It facilitates that. Well, given that facilitation and the fertile ground, just to finish off, look into your crystal ball a little bit and how far along the road to a different new normal will we be in, say, two years time? I think that we are embarking in an area in, into an era of constant change. We've, we've had constant change for the last hundred years. Why shouldn't we have constant change <laughs> before? So I think what you're talking about probably is those uh, step changes or disruptive changes that will come about as a result of the current experience. I would guess that within two years, uh, we might expect that somewhere between 50 and 75 percent of that would have been embedded into uh, working practice. A lot depends upon when the economy fully recovers uh, in the sense of uh, the majority of the workforce being back doing their thing. But many changes, we've seen signs already of some of those changes. We've, we've seen uh, a restructuring, particularly in the aviation and airline business that's already been declared. That will probably mean that subject to the market emerging, they, they will sort of go into their newer mode more quickly. 
Uh, others may come, may take a little time to decide exactly how they're going to structure themselves going forward into the future. And that's not all about job losses and, and, and reductions of workforce. Sometimes it's about equipping yourself to take advantage of, of new circumstances that have emerged as a result of this. But you ask me, I will wave my wet finger in the air, gaze into my crystal ball, and I would say, well, if we retrospectively in 20 years look back and say, what were the things that brought about a substantive change? I would say 50 to 70, 75% we would have seen within two years of effective start of business return. So judging from the announcements we've heard recently, let's say um, in just over two years from now, like we assume this will all start happening after the end of the conventional summer holiday period, end of August, beginning of September sort of time. That's probably when people would treat it, start doing things seriously. Very fascinating to see how this will all turn out. John Lofed, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gavin. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, I was in conversation with Professor John Lofhead, Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Professor Lofhead was also a speaker at the Foundation's online event held on the 22nd of June on post-coronavirus supply chains. Video and audio files of that event, along with details of all the work of the Foundation and, of course, all previous editions of the FSD podcast, are available on our website at www.foundation.org.uk.